Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Bilge Pumps. We can all take that in for a second, because for at least two of us, that is our age. <laughs> Bilge Pumps has reached our age. Jamie is currently, you know, aiming something at me, which thankfully he's in Australia, so it'll take a long time to hit. But, you know, <laughs> and we have to say three things. First of all, we have to say Thank you so much to our lovely audience before I introduce my colleagues, because you have sent us some wonderful submissions for the competition to be on Bilge Pumps. Also, we partially hate you all because <laughs> you've sent us such wonderful submissions for the be on Bilge Pumps. You've actually made it difficult. <laughs> on the plus and... side, it uh, it means we're we're sorted for topics for a good long time. Oh yeah, we've got you know they're they're excellent. They're fine. And um, yeah, thank you for listening. We have just realised that we've passed the fifty thousand downloads on the average one uh, mark. So thank you everyone it's what, um, what the hell is wrong with you 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 obviously have too much spare time on your hands <laughs> and don't realize that there are actually other quality podcasts out there yes and <laughs> of course it is just the free bilge pumpers a free mm. regular crew tonight it's me uh, alex clark it's uh, me drac or drac nfl <laughs> and me jamie of armored carriers Yes, Jamie is finally back to ride herd on me and Alec, uh, me and Drax so that we don't go completely off topic. Which would never happen, would it, Drax? <laughs> no, no. I mean, what, what was the last time? we Last time we were talking... What was it? We were, I can't remember what we were talking about. Um, I think we were talking about sort of independently operating uh, Seacraft and somehow ended up sending uh, the renewed HMS Erebus and Terra to Mars. Yes, <laughs> only a minor diversion. It, also, it worked. Uh, we also had, I think, at one point we were we were designing the fighter for the modern for the modern space warship, uh, a space carrier, and explaining that really the Corsair being your light interceptor was the wrong name and mm. your Spitfire being your heavy attack fighter was definitely the wrong name and your Lancaster being your carrier-based attack bomber so wrong <laughs> so so wrong unless unless of course that carrier is HMS Habakkuk in which case it's perfectly fine you should see Jamie's face right now it's looking at it going I am associated with these two what happened <laughs> to my life where did I go wrong <laughs> look at the plus side Jamie we, may, we, we it's it's kind of like one of those things it's like if you hang around us you automatically look good yeah. <laughs> you, you, you look like you're, the on, same you're on to me you're on to me yeah, simply because <laughs> oh. we're in the area oh, no. hey look I'm, in, I'm interested in all of these things but um yeah it's, it's just a matter of as you say keeping on topic I suppose you know um there's nothing wrong with uh, a little bit of a flight of fancy here from here or there. I really enjoyed our Battle Galactica episode, so um, I guess we have to figure out what what version we're going to do next. Mm. Oh, that is going to be that is going to be a discussion half. Let's let's save let's, let's just save <laughs> it all for that one episode though. Yeah, 
Um, yeah. Let's also, uh, what we're going to do today in today's topic is we're going to be discussing the proposals because we have got nine excellent submissions. We're going to talk about them and we're going to explain how we're going to do this because because you have done such good submissions we have sort of changed what's going to happen in terms of the results so the first one entry we've got on our on the chat that i managed to copy and paste into the chat so we could all be reading it at the same time is from lars skoyan i think i pronounced that right and it's a really nice one and it is all about civilian ships repurposed and what could be done with them. And it's a really cool discussion. It's it's the idea of sort of, you know, what using the civilian literal strike ship. Where can you use civilian ships and civilian hulls to make up for the expense and the time needed to build warships? It's, it was actually a bit of a recurring theme in several of the... Um submissions which is you know, highlighting a very valid point which is very much ignored i think or at least f from my perspective I, I haven't seen much evidence of it being discussed but the concept of a long war i think the only place where it gets really discussed is probably bilge pumps judging by <laughs> some of the other yeah. places i go and listen to so this is where all these boutique navies such as the australian navy suddenly realize that they lose most of their vessels after the first couple of engagements. What do you do? Um, yeah, but, but on top of that, I'm, I'm listening to Harrier 809 at the moment, the, the book that came out quite recently about the Falklands War. And uh, again, fascinating section there about the um, repurposing of a Atlantic conveyor. Mm. Um, you know, the plans that they had in place versus the time they had to do the ship showed that uh, at least during the 1970s, there was still very much a uh, active uh, you know, planning component to to revive the whole escort carrier concept. Well, we had that discussion with Michael Clapp when he was the yeah. Commodore on Peace Warfare. His whole argument he had over organising a convoy, um, a practice convoy, because the the idea was that it shouldn't be organised because. There, the war was there was going to be war was over so you have one side of the navy which is actually preparing for this long war for using these ships and you have the other side which is obviously orientated towards the treasury going there's no point spending that money any war is going to be nuclear and it'll be over in 45 minutes and these days we don't we're so we're not we don't think war's going to end up being nuclear straight away so but we we're still not providing the funding for this long war mm. thinking so yeah, anyway, the whole concept of yeah, again, and technology does actually sort of support the concept much more now. I think mm. yeah, things are getting so much smaller, and or you're getting a lot more packed in for the mm. for the size. So UAVs, absolutely, you've got you know, if anyone decides to build helicopter UAVs, then you're going to you know it, you don't need to have a massive yeah, yeah, support structure for um, air crew and uh, you know the like. You just you, you need the operators and you need the the maintainers and uh, yeah. you, you pretty you don't need a, a necessarily need a a full sized flight deck capable of landing a Chinook. You can have uh, you know something much more sm much smaller uh, slapped in a much more convenient place. So all of a sudden these 
the, the, uh, you know, I know that the whole containerized concept fell apart with um, the littoral combat ships, mm. but it's still a viable prospect, I suspect, if you can get past the whole proprietary problems of well, uh, as, you know, different manufacturers. So, as most people have kept bringing up, and I, I do love some of the things that they keep mentioning that come up quite often are the Otto Malera seventy six have come has come up quite mm-hmm. a lot in quite a lot of submissions, and the Standflex has come up quite a lot mm-hmm. in quite a lot of submissions. I'm not sure whether we should be sort of seeing a link between the two options mm-hmm. here. Yeah, well, I mean, that's it, it, uh, yeah. I mean, we obviously we'll do we'll end up doing a, a full episode on it, but um, quite a lot of mm. has been has been pointed out with the civilian ships or civilian spec ships in naval service. <clears throat> Actually, quite sensibly, harkens back to a number of roles where the original ships were pretty much civilian ships, and the fact that stuff has been built to military spec has been more to be perfectly honest, more of a conceit to having them within a navy as a sort of the navy as a warfighting organization, um, then perhaps is strictly necessary. It was pointing out in in the submission things about things such as uh, mine hunting as well, mm. because yeah, again, let's face it, the. Uh, um, if you're doing active mine hunting under fire, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and True. if you're not going to be under fire, well, well, why do you need to have the ship to military spec? Yeah, mm-hmm. the only unless, sort of unless, scenario unless where that's going to be counterinsurgency, you know, so. mm-hmm. or amphibious operations occasionally yeah. those are going to be under fire. But again. The thing is, if you're going to be using unmanned systems and mm. you have landing craft, surely you could use. And then those are going to make uh, uh, someone is going to be yelling at me for the, the, the uh, why, uh, for causing trouble in their first lift. But if you have a landing craft, you can use that to deploy the unmanned anti mine systems, surely. And then you would come back and take part yeah. in the lift. And that's going to be exposure risk because that's actually mm. it, the trouble is again you have less landing craft than you used to do, so it has to be probably one of the smaller LCBPs if we're talking mm. in the British spectrum because you don't want to risk an LCU. Yeah, although it will be interesting when we when we're looking through that in more detail to avoid what I, I I'm coming up with a whole list of um, of naval paradigms to avoid, and I've I've managed to. Quantify one that I've talked about on a few episodes on the channel, but I've now decided to name the Issei problem. Okay, which is named after the obviously the Issei's being turned into hybrid carriers, because I've raised the point a few times in response to people's questions of that. Yes, in theory, the hybrid battleship carriers the Japanese produced might have had a particularly niche role if you if you squint very hard. Um, one of the ideas I put forward was something along the lines of, well, if you'd loaded them entirely with fighters, then in theory they could provide a kind of cap-dedicated escort vessel for your main carrier strike group. And that's you know that's what the yeah. specific discussion was amongst the Royal Navy's hybrid yeah. battleships was yeah. specifically to provide fighter cap. Yeah, yeah. But the thing the thing is is like if you're the Japanese Navy and you're converting the Isais into hybrid carriers. The fact that you are converting your battleships into hybrid carriers 
speaks to a much larger problem than mm-hmm. whether or not they're going to have an effective use as a particularly niche escort vessel. It's more the fact that you need them in the first place. Yes. You, you've got bigger problems to deal with. And yeah. I think that this will that kind of principle will probably come into that this this discussion as well in terms of kind of yeah if if you're going to be what ships can you use civilian spec for rather than military spec and if any of the arguments if one of the arguments comes back to well they might be shot at it's kind of you have to look at it in the concept of the ESA problem of okay it's being shot at how likely is it to be shot at and if it is being shot at how badly wrong has the rest of the operation <laughs> gone because why are you still in other words why are you still doing this yes. if the operation's gone that badly yeah. to pop because they're, but, ma- they're but ma- then again you know the, yeah. the, the, the Atlantic conveyor tells us that there are problems from the outset yes yeah but uh, to be honest <laughs> yeah the, the, the Falkland how we ended up in the situation of the Falklands is its own own um, naval yeah. paradigm to examine basically if basically if you spend a little bit money a, a little bit more money earlier you'd have never had the mm. Falklands war mm. i don't know keep a carrier battle group maybe keep mm. an escort down there not not get rid of hms insurance have a decent garrison there are so many options for yes. avoiding the Falklands war before you actually but, I mean, get to the Falklands war yeah I mean, just just briefly covering something that at the time of recording is relatively recent and current news. Another good example of the ESA problem is, uh, at least in my view, is the uh, um, US Navy's latest plan to put long range missiles on their amphibious assault ships. They're not even long range in comparison to what they're up against. Yeah, but it's just like, okay, yes, in theory, you're increasing the lethality of your ships. On paper, this looks good. On the other hand, if you are using your amphibious assault <laughs> ships as naval strike vessels, just how wrong have things gone? The fact that you have a handful of naval strike vessels on your amphibious warships will not save you in the scenario where you to have be to be fair. I, I, I've worked out what the where the things went wrong. It's called the LCS. It mm. happened a few years ago, and this is the response. <laughs> Seriously, though, I mean, yeah, come on. Surely, surely, it would just be so much better to use that weight, use that space, use that money mm. on something to harden the ship. Mm. You know, or an attack a, gunship. An ex- this is an ex- easy fix. An extra, <laughs> an extra phalanx, an extra, yeah. an extra sea sparrow. A, a, a sea ram know. mount or something. Or, or to something be honest, might... given, given how, I mean, come on, this is the American military. Given how massively over budget and prolonged this program is going to be, you might as well have used the funding to add another squadron of Constellation class frigates and just have some proper escorts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Or well, yeah. an attack gunship. I know I said <laughs> earlier, but here's the, this is the serious thing. And attack the Americans keep looking at versions of the Cobra armed with anti ship missiles, versions of the Apache, which have been navalized, like the British have done. Not sure why the Australians are buying the American version when they wanted to operate from the Canberra class. It just seems a bit strange, mm. but we'll leave that to one side. Um, it, 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 you know, you arm them with anti ship missiles. They fly out. That's an actual useful range and a useful thing because the attack gunship can support the amphibious role. And if necessary, you go, right, hang on. The enemy have broken through. There's something has happened. We have, This is our contingency. And they're at that range because it's the range of the helicopter plus the missiles. And that yeah. becomes a sensible... Well, though, okay. though admittedly, the missiles are shorter, but... 
Uh, yeah, well, well, so, so an, an AH-64E, what, 250 miles thereabouts? Mm. Yeah. So what sort of missile? What sort of missile would they be carrying? Well, they can well still... brimstone, I would imagine, something like they that. They can carry harpoon-sized missiles, can't they? I saw one which well, had harpoons. Take, yeah, you can take Mavericks or stuff, but I, I suspect, given you've got things like the Spear series, they're looking at brimstone-sized missiles. And certainly, if you're well, if you're the Royal Navy or someone who's yeah. buying similar weapons, something of that caliber is probably better. Um, because well, so yeah, so, so, so in other words, the ship-based missile is still probably going to outrange it. Mm, yeah, but I mean, it's. I, I suppose in in. If, I can't remember what advert it was, but you, Doctor Clark. I don't know if you got them in Australia, Jamie. But yeah. Doctor Clark, you probably remember years ago in the UK on TV, you had the uh, the clever dumb balance adverts, where yeah. one person would do something incredibly smart, and then someone else would do something incredibly stupid. Ah, oh, the clever dumb balance has been restored. I, I think this is kind of operating in the U.S. Navy. They've had they've had a long streak recently of sensible decisions, like going back to naming submarines after fish and the, the, <laughs> the Constellation class frigates as a whole, both the, the actual ships themselves and, and the decision the to build a lot of them and the names and everything. So I suppose inevitably someone was going to make some kind of stupid decision like this. Um, well, um, yeah, we're we're also open to be convinced otherwise. So yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah if you can convince. I, I, if you can... I haven't I haven't seen their argument. I mean, I guess, yeah. I, I guess the the one area that this could actually make, and we're getting sidetracked again, mm. aren't we? Anyway, yeah. the point is, the one way that this 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 sort of decision could make some sort of use is if these missiles are actually more are actually dual purpose. If they're not just anti ship, if they can actually support the landings, you know, t- um, by targeting, you know, um, shore installations, but. Um, mm. Because you know, we we already know the the Marine Corps, the U.S. Marine Corps wants to go long range missile. Um, mm. We we know that they've not actually succeeded in convincing Congress to go down that path. So this could be their way of trying to uh, wedge it back into the equation. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, back to civilian ship yeah. purpose. The other proposal yeah. part of this was, um, you know, corvettes. These yeah. are the Arsenal. Yeah, uh, these are the Arsenal ships are looking for. I yeah, think that's going to be a very interesting one to explore, especially with some of the points that's been that been brought up in this submission. Um, the various yeah. types. Uh, it, it, I especially do love yeah pointing out the um, the Russian Karakuts class. It's some it's like it's <laughs> when when you have a ship where a a non insignificant dis- percentage of its entire displacement is made up of anti ship missile. <laughs> So I, I'm I'm pretty sure with those things, once they fire off their full load of anti-shipping missiles, they will be riding several feet higher in the water. <laughs> I, actually, I think actually they could probably take off after they fire those missiles. Actually, uh, the main uh, the main thing I'm worried about is whether they take off with the missiles rather than rather than launching the missiles. The missiles launch them. The mm. amount of thrust they can put out. Yeah. And then you've got yeah, you've got these some of the other examples like the SAR six and everything. I think that's going to be a very interesting discussion to have, especially in light of, as the submission mentions, the potential for automation dash um, full unmanned systems. Which, to be fair, let's face it, if you're going to do unmanned Corvette size, is probably where you want to start. Yeah. Yeah, or minimum, or minimally manned at least. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and this time hopefully again, um, looking at the LCS, this time hopefully people would bear in mind that when we say minimally manned or highly automated, that means 
actually putting in working automation systems so you don't need so many crew, not just going, we're going to have less crew. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And then all of a sudden discovering that you need them and not having the um, accommodation for them. Mm. We won't mention the USS Ford in that regard. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, yeah, and and hopefully no one will try building any of these new Corvettes out of aluminium and then forget about such a thing as galvanic action. You know, the the, the minor issue that navies have known about since, I don't know, the 1850s. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Drax, stop expecting them to read history. They're all STEM graduates. As I'm a know, STEM graduate. As we know, STEM graduates, as we are so regularly told by people who are IT billionaires, STEM graduates do not need to know about history. Well, or you're, or you're Australia, where you ramp up the prices of your um, history and um, uh, humanities degrees in order to subsidise the uh, STEM ones. Mm. Well, actually, no, they they're not even doing that, really. They're just hiking the uh, the fees for um, <laughs> to try and discourage yeah. um, people yeah. from going into those um, arenas. Yes, which is going to mean rich people are going to continue to do history degrees and then they're going to work in a few years' time. Someone's going to sit and go... How come, why come all the people who have become leaders and politicians and communicators in our country are all rich people from rich backgrounds? <laughs> oh! No, well, I don't know what country you're talking about. I think most of ours are real estate agents. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also in that submission, um, there's also embedded a little topic that maybe could be, it could be its own episode it could be a, a, a sort of the b plot of another episode italy <laughs> uh which was, we we've mentioned a few yes, times you have mentioned before, before that uh, it, like, italy seems to get the balance reasonably right yeah yeah they're, they're, they're kind of like the the i don't know what the correct term is not the stalking horse but they're, they're like the the silent unrecognized aspect of things because when when people are talking about big navies making innovations it's always china america russia occasionally britain and france no one ever really talks about italy but they're more likely to talk about germany than italy which seems really strange considering Mm. the german navy is tiny and me and drac are not going to get into the cylon frigate again no or their current ones that have problems staying upright or afloat yeah. um we, we we won't get into it we realize that the german navy has many issues and frankly us spending an hour taking the piss out of them excuse the french is probably not any help but we we, we wish them luck and we hope they get well soon uh but, but yeah. the italian navy are good yeah it's yeah, definitely the italian and the spanish have been mm. very busy with their um Ship I, I, construction. So I, I, I'm less keen on the Spanish aspect, yeah. a, a, aesthetics than I am the Italian ones. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not too keen on Navantia's uh, build quality. <laughs> well, uh, isn't it the Spanish submarines which came actually, out about three times the weight they were supposed to be? Yeah, they they weren't going to resurface. Well, and also it was uh, the Helga Instad, that Norwegian one, that had all the horrific damage control issues uh, when it when it rammed itself into a some civilian vessel or other and turned yeah. out to be insanely lightly built that was a spanish product i mean to be fair you could probably we could even fold that part into the civilian ships um operating in a military role has navantia sneakily managed to introduce this standard anyway <laughs> don't don't say oh. that we've just we've just gone on board a whole bunch of their ships 
<laughs> but uh, yes, but uh, interesting enough, what are you doing for your frigates? Who are you buying your ship designs well, from? When, 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 when the Devantia ships show up, put them in dry dock, get a nice strong coat of gloss enamel, and give them a once over with a spray gun, and you've instantly doubled the hull thickness. <laughs> um, but yes, no, the the, Ita- the Italians definitely need a bit more of a mention. I mean, as as we all know the italian navy often gets critically underappreciated in world war Two as well oh yeah uh, that they, they had their issues for cert for sure but, but what navy didn't yeah. yeah but but to be fair most of the italian navy's issues weren't so much to do with their ships it was almost entirely to do with stuff that happened on land and to be perfectly frank a lot of the leadership um yeah. well you know they did have il duce who let's be honest mm. Out of all the leaders in the in the Second World War, is probably, and this is saying something, mm. it, 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 it is probably the nuttiest. Mm. And and to be <laughs> fair, to be fair, it was it was his process of decision making that makes the uh, what was it the the Black Adder goes forth line about uh, oh a particularly dangerous native with a sharpened piece of guava fruit, not actually entirely just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> they almost they they practically did lose in the, to a couple of natives with sharpened fruit. Um, <laughs> when you have to resort to full scale industrialized air bombing campaigns to deal with uh, deal with a bunch of people whose primary weapon is the spear, followed by some imported rifles that fell off the back of a truck. Uh, uh, a very interesting British truck and a couple of American trucks, which mm. uh, had absolutely nothing to do with the governments of either yeah. nation in any way, shape, or form. Six I mean, truckloads yeah. of rifles and about two dozen truckloads of ammunition from each nation just randomly appeared there. I mean, as, as much as we sometimes give give uh, the US uh, stick for places like things like the vietnam war and some of the more recent escapades at the very least the people they've been fighting on and hurting against in those um conflicts have actually had you know modern automatic weaponry and rocket launchers and missiles and such um and toyota pickup trucks mostly yes that that let's be honest they're indestructible that's just (laughs) seriously when toyota starts producing the tanks for the japanese army that's the point at which we should all start surrendering Maybe, maybe, maybe I should throw. Maybe they. Maybe they should get into ship design. Yeah. Maybe I oh, should throw that. Lord. I should throw that over to. Throw that over to the chieftain at one point for him to discuss. It's like the Toyota Hilux and its role in the modern land-based military. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do worse get, than the Humvee, to be perfectly we, we, honest. We should probably get the chieftain on bilge pumps at some point to have this discussion. <laughs> Good dude. Might be. Might be too sea-based for him, but I can always ask. Yeah, um, that'd be fun. But yeah, so that that I mean that's. And this is the thing. It's like this is all stuff that's just come out of one submission. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's and the next bit is um, oh no, it's a, it's, sorry, it's a next next submission is, mm. is actually it's, it's got some similar ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's from Alex Scott, mm-hmm. and it's really really cool. And actually, I have to admit, this submission, I think it's the one which has uh, has had uh, Jamie thinking about who we could invite on to maybe come along and um, chat with Alex about this one because he he mentions talking about to Dr. Sal Sal, Dr. McLaren who likes to comment on my YouTube site so thank you Sal 
I know he comments on both yours as well. Mm. A very nice guy. And um, basically with Alex's, well, he would like to look at designing a modern Liberty ship and all the things about that. And what it could be used for. And he actually Mm. points out himself. It would be interesting to have Dr. Sal Marcellos and his points. Mm. And I thought, well, we thought, well, we could have Sal on with Alex possibly to discuss Mm -hmm. if Alex and Mm. Sal would agree. We'll we'll raise this with them because it's a really interesting idea because, again, it's the long war Mm. and it's something which people don't think about. Long war. You're going to need new merchant ships. And the accompanying escorts. Yeah. As he says, part of his submission is what would the accompanying flower class escort be? Mm. So, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, they, they... one of the um, one of the LHD, well, actually no, both of the um, uh, littoral combat ships were based on civilian hulls. Mm-hmm. The uh, Freedoms were uh, a luxury yacht, and the um, Independences were um, based on, um, well, lo- again loosely on ferries. So, you know, uh, all those trimaran um, uh, ferries out there, maybe they could become, you know. Uh, and, and, and all those billionaire yachts out there could all become, um, <laughs> uh, you know, put those modular units in that we never built mm. for the the littoral ships, and um, they can become. The trouble a- is, it, it, it's going to sound terrible. Neither of those industries these days seem to me to be set up for mass production. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, this is. I'm this thinking is about those think- sort of. Sh- you're going to need to mass produce a a, a, a Corvette. Like you're going to need to mass produce the merchant ship. And I'm trying to think of which small ship industry is actually set up for mass production. Well, I mean, this is kayaks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you can put much on a cart, though, or a dinghy. Yeah, I mean, this, I think this is going to be, I mean, this will probably tie in somewhat to the uh, civilian ships mm. used in military purposes. Because, I mean, well, the flower class is a perfect example based on a, on a whaler-fishing ship. Um, you had the two... Li- weapons fit. Yeah, you had the two, two lines of production of the corvettes and the sloops, the sloops being the military-grade higher-end ones, but the corvettes being the civilian-type, more mass-produced. Um, so, yeah, we're we'll probably get into a, a fair bit about how to do that and what might be more suitable for use. I mean, you know, where, you know, who mass produces fishing boats anymore? I mean, mm. other than the Chinese, we have, we have about one builder in the UK, which does decent fishing boats. And we have, it's going to sound strange that I'm going to start bringing up names in Falmouth. There is a shipyard down in Falmouth, which does a very nice line in, um, motor yachts and those sort of uh, those sort of things and does decent sized ones of those and they are the closest i can think of to a mass producer of them in the uh, in the uk i'm not sure if this i'm trying to think of if there's one in america there must be one in america mm. Mm. well know. i mean so, so, so much has been outsourced so know. many yeah. yards have disappeared this is the problem this is the other problem the long war in that it's got each these ladies keep being cut from having their. Uh, if you don't have the civilian market, 
or it's outsourced. And the only way it's going, you're going to keep the market in the UK or in Australia or in America is if you have a reason that you can't outsource it. So if you have a line of, of naval production going on for small ships, you know, uh, this is one of the things why I, I, I fervently believe that every Navy should be ordering two or three river class vessels every year as patrol ships just to keep the facilities going because they're not that expensive and keep them going and then just retire the ones which you don't need so maybe they or, only or serve we... 10 or so years of your navy australia tends to donate them to um surrounding pacific islands although i think we're actually building a specific class at the moment of uh, smaller vessels for that sort of purpose but again they're not really the of the variety that can be scaled up to a um uh you know a corvette they're more the police boats but uh, let's be honest the river class is probably the the, the closest the batch too so the closest you could get to a sort of corvette production in the british sense mm -hmm. at the moment mm -hmm. i mean well you've i mean there's to be honest again something which we can explore in a bit more detail in the actual episode but you might even be looking at something along the lines of um re restarting the old rms style uh system where they're not necessarily making big liners or anything but where na national governments subsidize the construction of certain ships certain lines of ships in exchange for some of that subsidy going into constructing uh sort of strong points mounting points etc that would allow those ships to be much more quickly turned around into um armed vessels in the future mm. yep uh, and again i guess that's where your the ferries and things can come into it so mm. i mean those are those are ships i suppose that are in reasonable use and have a you know a, a relatively higher turnover turnover you know they don't sort of stay in service until they fall apart like most other uh, merchant vessels they because of the they're carrying human cargoes <coughs> so yeah um i guess then we've got the next one which sort of takes us back a bit yeah it's mm -hmm. from tom golding and it's a really cool one. A terrible sort of war. Amphibious operations in the era of the pike and the shot. Mm -hmm. Musket and bayonet. Yes, this is going to... I think, to be honest, I think this could this could stretch over a couple of episodes, possibly more, because we've got multiple periods mentioned here. Um, surely, several... surely, there's an, surely there's an expert as well we can pull in yes. on this one. Yeah, but yeah, we, we happen well, to know I, an amphibious um, warfare expert. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I was actually thinking that it's that, that they're talking about the American Revolution, and this mm. uh, this uh, Tom did study under a certain uh, professor. So let's mm. possibly see if um, Prof Lambert might enjoy mm. getting involved in that one. Yeah, and there's there's so there's a couple there's what we've got five themes. Yeah, looking at a lot of details about the the only thing that I'd throw into into that that's i don't think is mentioned in here which probably bears some some mention uh, is given that given the era is also the swedish russian conflict in the oh Baltic. yes 
they 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 actually really went in quite all in for some fairly advanced amphibious warfare tactics that um especially as a good compare and contrast because there's a few a few incidents that are listed in here that or and general themes where there were issues with kind of the classic napoleonic sides trying to make their various landings and actually a lot of the stuff that was developed in the baltic campaign would address would have addressed that and I, I one of the things i find interesting is when we start talking about amphibious warfare how often is it that the conversation immediately goes to World War II and then may, it jumps to the Falklands War? Mm. And it's almost forgotten that a lot of amphibious warfare was conducted prior to that. It's why navies were invented in the first place, really. Mm. Yes. Was, it, was, it, it was more so to protect that you know, uh, invading force than it was initially to... To, to fight off pirates. Well, as Simon Elliott discussed, it was for basically supplying the uh, Roman army that the Romans had yeah. a navy. Yes, yeah. and it, and it was one and of the same. The, for, uh, sorry, I just want to say it's exactly the same for the you know for for the early years for Britain as well, and for mm. m most other navies, it was all about you know getting your horses and your men and their material to where you wanted them to go and protecting them on the way. So um, the whole concept of um, uh, you know, supply lines and logistics, um, in, you know, interdicting logistics and the like came after. So, yeah, look, yeah. I mean, this, this is an this is an era that I know very little about. So personally, I'll be quite interested to sit back and listen and learn on on this particular one. That, that's one of the things I've taught this era, but I've never really sort of written much about it. So I'd be really just, and as I said, if we could maybe get Prof Lambert to come along mm -hmm. as well to that. That would be a very, very interesting one. We'll, we'll see what we can arrange on that one. Uh, and it, it, it sort of it feeds straight into the next one. In that next one is from Alexander Mellis, who has um, e closely at e closely as his Twitter handle, and for engaging closely. And it's all about the long war. And mm. this is one I know which Jamie was particularly interested in because Jamie. One of the things well, again, Jamie, it, it, uh, Jamie it is a, is a very dedicated ones. thinker, and one of the things he does like to think about is the long war and talk about these things, you know. And it, it it's one of the things I find really, uh, Jay, as we all know, Jamie is an excellent journalist, and I'm speaking about him as if he's not here, but he is here. As Jamie's an excellent journalist, and of course they're always writing about what's happening currently. But Jamie's also one of the longest range thinkers I think I know. Do you agree, Drac? Mm -hmm. he, he thinks about things over a long period, and. Really, I, I sometimes wonder how he managed to condense his thinking into the quality of journalis journalism he does, because he doesn't think that short. <laughs> Practice. Um, but look, you know, the, the, again, it's, it's my favourite subject, is that nothing ever happens in isolation. There's always a massive context around it. And it's that massive context that pushes every isolated subject in a, in a particular direction or sometimes in multiple directions. So, you know, everyone always, every war in history was always going to be over before Christmas. None of them ended up that way, or at least incredibly few of mm. them did. So, you know, let's face it, why the hell would, um, apart from the nuclear option, would the next one go the same direction? Well, we've, you know, Af how, you know Afghanistan, longest war in history. Mm. Um, yeah, the, 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 the trend has been, for long wars, apart from you know a, f a few steamroll actions 
in terms of wiping out um, you know, uh, much smaller militaries. But um, look, the, the concept of just you know, what 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 do you do? How do you handle it? You know, do you actually set up a production line for I don't know, shall we say Mustangs? Mm. <laughs> and uh, because you know. You, you, Let's face it, you're, you're not going to get an F-35 replacement mm. uh, anytime soon. Aren't so Mustangs got, already in production? Isn't there a company which actually still produces Mustangs? So, something like them, I think. So, the, so, yeah, so, there uh, was an adapted version of a ground attack that came out a few decades back. Yeah, it was... Again, they're, they're not sexy. They're not, you know, they're, they're not all powerful. They're not all singing, all dancing, magical things. But uh, you use them for your insurrection. And you use them to fill those gaps once you've lost uh, three quarters of your um, um, modern, uh, you know, fast jet fleet in the first hours of a um, of a major conflict. But then again, I suppose you know the, the next argument is, well, do you need that? Why not just go for something like a loyal wingman? Because I guess that's basically what it becomes. Um, so look, yeah, there's, yeah, it's. Just one of those subjects where I, I can't. We, we, we spend so much money, so much effort, so much material in ships that take so long, and aircraft that take so long to build, and yet it can still be sunk in seconds. Yeah, I mean, it's, to be honest, I think, and again, we'll get into this a lot more in the episode. But I think a lot of the, a lot of the reason why wars tend to last a lot longer than anyone expects it comes down to two factors one of which is no weapon ever performs close to the manufacturer's specs Mm. so everyone's like oh yes we will launch x of this weapon and therefore the enemy will be defeated in y time everyone goes home then it turns out actually the enemy gets a vote too and your weapon isn't as good as the manufacturer said it was so you end up in a much Mm. longer term slugging match and also as is probably perhaps more demonstrated in insurgencies but also to a certain degree in sort of if you like full-on peer-to-peer conflicts sometimes you can sit there and go ah yes we have done this this and this therefore the enemy is beaten and the enemy just sits there and goes nah we're gonna fight by different (laughs) rules yeah yeah it's like i I refuse to acknowledge that i have been beaten it's like but you have been beaten well i'm still fighting so unless you want to give me victory (laughs) i I guess (laughs) Yeah, and yeah, but you see, also you, the you fact also that, need your Jamie, to, do ev- that. to be fair, yes. every war has <clears throat> been over by Christmas. 1914, 18 war was over by Christmas. 1918, <laughs> you know, World War Two was over by Christmas. 1946. <laughs> you know, you see, the thing is, that's always the thing when people say the war is going to be over by Christmas. You notice they never say which Christmas. <laughs> so it's great propaganda. The war will be over by Christmas. Have you, considered a, have you considered the career in politics? <laughs> <laughs> if it's a nuclear one, you can create your own nuclear winter at any time of the year. I call it Christmas. <laughs> mm. Radio, yeah. radio Christmas. Radio yes, Christmas. But, you know, anyway, just, just getting back to the, the to the subject, but you need, you need that ability to be able to shift the goalposts as mm. well, and that's why I said, you know, maybe having that. You know, uh, having that th- third generation tech, mm. the capacity to mass produce third generation tech instead mm. of your fifth generation, 
um, means that you can use your fifth generation to punch that hole in with your third generation coming behind. Um, or, yeah, it's something along those lines. It just, I just can't see that having all your eggs in one basket yeah. has ever paid off historically, and why should that change now? No. And also, no war has ever actually been won by a fleet which was entirely... No full-on war mm-hmm. has ever been won by a fleet which is entirely first-rate. No. You always have a mixture <clears throat> of forces. You always have... And you consider it's the same with land war. You have a mixture of forces. So when you, I hear people going, yes, the entire Navy all has to be these top-of-the-range things, I sit down and go, Why? Is that because, and there is a legitimate reason for making this case, because if you think, honestly, your treasury and government are not going to fund you to have enough ships, so the only sh- you're only going to get a few, you're not going to get enough ships, to, well, the only ships you can build, uh, if you need to, a long time to build them, are going to be your first rate, so you have to concentrate on them, so that's why you're concentrating on a small elite force of the best you can get, because you hope desperately that when there's a big war coming, the government's going to wise up and start funding the mass-produced stuff you need. Or you don't think there's actually going to be a proper war. And as history has shown, usually when you start thinking there's not going to be a proper war, that's when one happens. That's when you're inviting one to come along, yes. Yeah, and and, and I think sometimes it's it's due to something of a too, too high a level analysis of previous wars or, look, or looking at the big flashy actions because i'm just thinking like look at the second world war yes in in the mediterranean you've got uh, the armored carriers duking it out with the uh, fleet corps 10 and uh, the regia aeronautica you've got the king george V class battleships doodling around in on arctic convoy duty you've got essex class carriers in the pacific but what a lot of people don't tend to talk about so much is the old d-class and e-class cruisers on convoy escort in the south atlantic the 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 armored cruiser yes there was an armored cruiser active in world war ii the georgius avaroff running indian ocean escort missions it's like and and if you go back to world war one it's like all the pre-dreadnoughts i mean okay fair enough possibly using them at gallipoli is not necessarily the wisest of courses but they were there they were able to provide the fire support um, which meant that you didn't have to divert the, the, the dreadnoughts themselves. And then you've got... Don't take this the wrong way, but a couple of pre-dreadnoughts which have been modernised would have been freaking useful at D-Day because, mm-hmm. honestly, the big guns are lovely, but the, 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 that secondary, those secondary guns they had would have been very, very mm. nice and helpful. Yeah, and then you look elsewhere in the First World War where all the pre-dreadnoughts, the older armoured cruisers were doing commerce protection, convoy work, swatting various minor outposts etc all of that stuff doesn't get written about an awful lot but if those older ships hadn't been there then either you would have had to leave those threats festering or you would have had to divert significant assets from something like the grand fleet to go and do it and you would have probably had to divert those assets because Hmm. you couldn't support the grand fleet if you didn't have that trade moving exactly yeah so it's Again, you know, long-term thinking. Yes. And we all know it. modern politics doesn't seem to do long-term thinking. Yeah. You can question where some modern politicians do thinking. <laughs> yes. All right. Next subject.
This uh, one is something which we have to say we have been thinking there are various options for doing possibly a podcast, possibly others, because mm -hmm. this one is Trent Talenko's submission. And it has got all of us going, oh. One, one of those fascinating subjects which, yeah, we should know about, but we don't. <laughs> Radar yeah. intelligence, counterintelligence, and electronic warfare in the Pacific War. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah and it's, something, it's, like, it's something we associate with the Cold War, but definitely not World War Two, or at least for me. Mm. Yeah, it's there's a, there's such a huge amount of information here, as as we were saying, it's it's something I think. Well, it obviously merits a, a full bilge pumps episode, but I think it's going to see a spin off of a lot more <laughs> as well. Mm. Um, probably probably videos on all of our channels and collective videos, <laughs> looking at it. There's just so there's so much information, and as as Jamie just said, it's such a forgotten aspect of the Second World War, which I again. Again, probably has a lot of bearing in and of itself is an incredibly interesting subject, but it also has a bearing on the more modern day stuff of this is still is stuff that doesn't get talked about very much and it probably, and probably not doesn't get appreciated. Funded. Yeah, <laughs> but you'd be, you'd be surprised just how difficult it is to operate a Navy when the other side has the ability to shut down your ability to talk to each other. Yeah, it does make life difficult. And this one is it, this one is just so well researched. It is there is just so much information here. Um, we're just going through it, going oh my, and oh this, and that, and oh, and there are so many people to talk to. He's recommended, and he's talked about it. It's just it is the the whole thing of what's going on, and you start to realise how quite or sort of how quite um broad it was mm. you know you've got the royal australian navy involved you've got the u.s army involved in that unit you've got the u.s navy the u.s army single corps you've got the royal navy you've got all sorts of people involved in this for it was a real allied effort and all of us were sitting here going where is this in the books <laughs> we were looking at we were all looking yeah. at our book collections going we've got they've these all big got, they've, they've all got bits and pieces but None of them sort of pull it together in this sort of way. The the it it really is sort of you know it's it's the okay. So we, everyone keeps hearing about Bletchley Park breaking you know German codes, but this is the whole other side to that story. That the the whole um, you know, tracking, the whole data analysis, the whole um, counter you know, electronic warfare, counter warfare. It's just um, uh, equally fascinating because it's a mind game. Yeah, and mm. as we were sort of talking about in the beginning, I'm not sure, I can't remember which one was brought it up, but one of us brought up the fact that Bletchley Park, when they had, during World War II, were always associating them with code, code breaking. What we forget is that the vast majority of the information gained and some of the most actionable material gained was actually from traffic analysis, not breaking the code. Because even mm -hmm. when they couldn't break the messages and couldn't read them, they were able to do traffic analysis. And that was working out where is the volume of traffic coming from? Which commands is it being sent to? What's going where? Why is this a place making a lot of noise? And 
that was critical to World War Two. So I'm guessing the whole problem for this particular um, operation in uh, the Pacific is it doesn't have a cool name like Bletchley Park. No. It's well, just that, called, that and the records. It's, it's just with, called Section 22. So at least it wasn't it, Section 31. Or uh, Section 42. <laughs> but, the, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I think also a lot of it is probably similar to Bletchley Park in a, in a way that it laid the foundations for an awful lot of stuff that was probably incredibly important in the Cold War. Mm. And therefore, it probably deliberately didn't get talked about for a long time due to classification. And then by the time it perhaps the data was available, not only had it been scattered to the four winds because it was a combined allied effort, which meant that the various allies afterwards made off with their copy, their bits of the documentation. Um, but also by that point, the narrative had kind of set in of this is how the war was fought and with this big gap in it. Because, I mean, how many how many books have we read, especially older ones, where it just talks about allied intelligence efforts did this? Yes. And that's always yeah. like, what allied intelligence efforts? How did they do this? Was it was it spies? Was it electronic warfare? Was it interceptor communications? Mm. It's like, no, it's just allied intelligence efforts. I mean, just, just <laughs> one example here is, you know, uh, it's talking about um, a raid by Saratoga and Princeton on a ball. Now, who would have thought that in... World War Two, there would be plotting paths through Japanese radar envelopes in the same sort of way that we think in terms of um, F-35s weaving through, you know, radar bubbles to get to their mm. targets now. That's, that's, that's what happened. They tracked down, pinpointed, triangulated the location of the um, Japanese defense network and found ways for the, for the strike to get through without being detected and therefore... Man, uh, surprise the enemy so um yeah look there's just again there's so much material there so much of it's new how are we going to cram it into one episode i've got no idea mm. well yeah i think that's probably going to be one of the most expansive ones we're going to be covering mm -hmm. and what comes after that one um well, that one and i have to admit i was being naughty because i was trying to read it on my phone as well uh next one on my phone instead of on the screen because <laughs> on the screen is quite a small chat <laughs> oh. right then so the next one is from hugo fisher and it is well you asked for sketch designs of hybrid battleship carriers with monster rail guns and drones yes i, I did bilge <laughs> comes 22 Oh, no. Yes, <laughs> I, 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 I've been working on one since then. I was doing the last couple of drawings when you announced the topic competition. I had planned to send my design to you through Discord, but this seems more appropriate. The topic is my design study for the battleship with electromagnetic cannon drones. Text and plans are at the URL given above. Now, have you two clicked on the URL? Because I have, and it's cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. my, first, my first thought was, this would have to be a coalition effort in terms of budget <laughs> <laughs> i love it it's mm. cool <laughs> and uh, yes. eggs, in, eggs, eggs in one basket well, yeah. this, this is not a, this is not a long warship <laughs> well it is a long warship it's the entire war <laughs> in <that> one <laughs> ship <laughs> oh oh this is 
this is be- it is beautiful. And also, this is one of the reasons why we love doing this. Because when you first looked at this, I sort of thought that was a short one. And then I saw this one and went, oh my goodness me, this is long. It's mm-hmm. the Jean Bart. And it is just, it is, it, it is beautiful. Yes. Um, but he says, I don't want to talk about it. I've already written enough and now really want to listen to what other people say. That can be you guys or mm-hmm. uh, any combination ab- above if you wanted to refer to sheds. So we wouldn't do that, but we do want to talk about this. We might talk, even talk about this episode or some other one. Seeing as Jamie's popped off somewhere, probably to get more drink. Shall we have a good chat about it, Drac, now? <laughs> well, I think I think it's going to have its own... Uh, there's so much work yeah, and detail the, that's the, gone the, into this. It's going to have its own episode. It's got to. Yeah. But it yeah. is. Um, I, I won't post the link in the description of this podcast because it's going to be coming up, but I yeah. will check with... Um, I will I will check with Hugo if he doesn't mind us posting a link to it in, in mm. a, when we eventually discover it because it does look cool and it is really really worked through. I'm loving the fact that the guns are all double barreled. Mm-hmm. That makes me and Drac very happy because in our worldview we are not quite sure why single barreled weapons are still around yeah. at the precise time. There was possibly a good idea during the end of the Cold War to save money, but now it's... Mm. I love the drone hangar. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that it has its own sort of... It's it, it sort of... How, how do I put it, describe it? It, it? It's kind of like Battlestar Galactica with its own sort of deployment shoots mm-hmm. for the drones and recovery. And by gum has, uh, has it got a lot of double 57mm bofers on it. Which is always a good thing. It's got, uh, I think it's six doubles. <laughs> oh, yeah, got one. Know. Yeah, it's six doubles both. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's 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 certainly got one of the best point defense systems in existence. <laughs> yeah, there is there isn't anything getting close to this ship without it saying hello. And mm. um, when I say hello, I mean hello. Here, have a full volume of um, flack, and we'll see if you're crying afterwards. I, it looks really well designed. It's really gone into a huge amount of detail. Mm. Uh, it's by, created by Hugh Fisher. I don't mind being called Hugo Fisher. That's mm. good because that's what we call it because that's what's in the email. But um, it's it's really really cool. And I as I, I do agree, Drag, it's going to be a full episode. But he also rep- uh, talks about the expanse and he's brought sci-fi into it. He's brought it's just there is just so much content. It's a whole website <laughs> that has been set up for this. Oh. And he's even explained why didn't you finish the drawing? He's done his drawings in pencil. <laughs> they are they look good in pencil. I like them mm. in pencil. Oh, well, I'm sure we, you know, we've all done this kind of thing, but uh, certainly not to this t- degree of um, refinement. No. <laughs> no, it is very, very refined. It is good. So we, we will well, do we, something. I, I think I think it should be called the, the the ship should be called whatever prefix you want hegemony, mm-hmm. hegemony, mm. because it is a single unit of imposing such a yeah presence. Yeah, it is. Right. Next subject. Yes, which is from a very nice gentleman called Paul Taylor. 
who has um, who has basically said a nice thing, saying "Hello, Bilgepump's crew." Mm-hmm. Um, I have never really considered the role the United States has on the global scale. Foreign policy is, of course, directed first by needs of the state. However, as being a, as a benign hegemon, I've come to believe the U.S. needs to be consider its position on the world stage when deciding policy. I believe discussion from Bill Trump on the role of the United States on the world stage from an international perspective will be both beneficial and informative. In terms of the talk, some talking points of discussion might include some of the following. In terms of monetary and security, what is expected in the United States on a global scale? This includes things such as anti-piracy operations and protection of international trade. When is, the, when is intervention from the United States welcome to an international disputes conflicts? Does the United States favor displays of hard power over soft power? Should this change? And what are the recent successes of U.S. foreign policy? What are the failures? And it's a well, really I guess you know there's a, there's a whole lot of history there from World War II onwards, basically, isn't there? You know, um, plenty of examples to pick pick through. Yeah, and many uh, situations to discuss. Um, <clears throat> we won't try to cast too far into the future because who knows? We might have a Trump fleet versus a Biden fleet. <laughs> Um, I'm I'm going to let Drac read out the next paragraph from him because, uh, well, specifically, he's mentioned one of your recent videos uh, from Montana. And I think you should say uh, that you should read that out because apparently you can pronounce the name correctly. And I'm now worried I would pronounce it wrongly. Um, Is this the last one? Yeah. Uh, Okay. He says, I want to thank you all for the great content you provide, both from Bilge Pumps and your individual endeavours. Dr. Clark's videos have been especially enjoyable to listen to at work during COVID. Additionally, I want to thank Drac for his video on the USS Helena. Um, I'm from Montana and she's one of my favourite ships. I was especially happy that the correct pronunciation of Helena was used. Correct for Montana, anyway. (laughs) I look forward to learning much more than from all of you in the future thank you for your consideration well there's definitely going to be uh that's it's definitely going to be a very in-depth episode and i think that that covers pretty much all aspects of yeah. naval policy and and power projection that we've been talking about over the past uh half a year just over half a year's worth of episodes so it's yeah i must admit actually is it yeah when it comes to pronouncing pronouncing names so hard that, yeah well you, you, local you dialects ex- yeah you know. you'd kind oh. of expect there to be differences in um in something as somewhere as large and as populous as america um i mean the, the amount of stick i got in the first pearl harbor salvage video because i said nevada and apparently it's nevada um <laughs> and then some other people saying no but in our part of america we call it nevada and i was like well, I, i've never heard that but fair enough and, and some I, I, I even call it nirvana yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm expecting somebody for some particularly Star Wars oriented section of America to call it Nevada, but um, but then I realised, well, hang on a minute, let's face Look. it, that's possibly a slightly hypocritical position to be surprised from, given that I'm from the UK, where the pronunciation of any particular place or word can change in about a thirty minute drive. Well, I was going to well, say that yes. what we really need, what we really need on on the team, is a Kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll, that'll, that'll throw a first uh... batter in the world. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, at, le- at least at least in America, when they're talking about Helena or or Nevada or whatever, 
at least they're all talking about the same thing in the uk we can't even agree on the same on the meaning of specific words yes like when when like down here if i go into a i don't know a fish and chips place or something um in surrey or hampshire or somewhere like that if i ask for a batch of chips i will get a large portion of chips um like the, however much they're cooking at that point whereas when i go up occasionally to the area around coventry for the semi-annual uh, the, uh, the twice twice yearly uh historical reenactors market um at least pre-covid if you go there they have an item up on the menu that is chip batch and you think, okay, chip batch, that makes sense. I will have a chip batch. I haven't fancy a lot of chips. And what you actually get is that actually means a bunch of chips in a bun. So a chip sandwich. Which is slightly less chips than I thought I was getting, but still a welcome food stuff. Uh, so, you know, we, we can't even agree on the, on, the, on the meaning of the word batch in the UK. So well, I do apologise to any Americans I may have inadvertently mocked because you pronounce we've, the we've same got, word we've, differently. We're going slightly off subject again, but yeah. you, you think that's bad. Mm. In Australia, there is a particular food product that's called Poloni in mm -hmm. Western Australia, Luncheon in Queensland, Fritz in South Australia, Devon mm -hmm. in Victoria, uh, and in other parts it's called Belgium. Any idea what it is? Sausages. Meat? Basically, yeah, it's, it's a it's a big a big slab of uh, round of, of soft sausage that's uh, basically we just slice up, chuck it on some bread with sauce, and kids love it. Mm. But uh, Every you know, every every state's got its own word for mm. it, and uh, yeah, it's great fun. Um, people come to South Australia and say, "Yeah, I want some Devon, please." Mm -hmm. what? <laughs> what? We go over, go into state, and ask for some Fritz. Yeah, what? So, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I'm sure there are many, many such examples. And mm. we really should get back to our subject, which is about United States foreign policy. Mm. And it's hit yeah. the naval hegemony. And it's, it's cool. They do. Uh, <laughs> that actually brings but, us back to what we, me and Drag were discussing in the previous episode, which was we were talking about the new LCS packs. And Drac actually thought, because I, it's modeled on Deserons, he thought the USA was being very sensible and grouping its Burks together to practice for war fighting. <laughs> and then I had to break it to him. And he was almost in tears, Jamie, when I told him, no, 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 they're, they're grouping the LCS together. <laughs> and sort of going, why? <laughs> so, look, I mean, I think, I think the main answer to this particular subject is, you know, you guys had the money, you guys had the ships, therefore we mm. wanted you to do all the work. Um, <laughs> uh, the, these circumstances are changing, and um, yeah, everyone's sort of having to wake up to the to that fact. So, you know, um, where things go and how things turn out, well, you know, it's all up in the air, I suppose. But um, there's certainly, you know, everything from uh, the, the the 1980s running the convoys through to um the middle east after the tank the tanker war i think it was called mm -hmm. 
You know, we, mm-hmm. I think uh, that was once again a coalition effort um, led by the United States. Uh, I think it was when USS no Stark was hit in the opening uh, during the um, yeah Stark was hit during that period, wasn't it? The yeah by the by by the Iraqis instead of who they expected to be by the Iranians. Um, and there, there was uh, another ship got hit by a mine. But yeah, these there's, there's um, so many different examples where. Yeah, I think the United States leads the way, it breaks the ice in many ways, and um, everyone else sort of comes along to to wave the flag and to show that they're uh, good and loyal allies. So We're participating. Yeah. We're here for our participation medal. But it also works in reverse, as you know from um, Suez. Mm. Yes. Where they get worried that the RN's going to have egg on its face and basically says, no, don't do that anymore. Or they get worried, let's be honest with Suez, they're more worried that the RN and French are going to do it and then they're going to... Well, Suez is one of those interesting things where they weren't successful and quickly enough. As I've been through this, the Americans had to know what was going on and what was being planned. There is no way such a large fleet and all these things could have been organised without the Americans who were ba- who were actually sitting as liaison officers in various of the shipyards and the ports and visiting them, seeing. There is no way it could have been done. So basically the thing is, uh, as soon as because it takes so much long, then the Americans go, no, you're going to have to stop this. But if they'd, they'd actually succeeded, it's one of those things where if they'd taken more force and probably done the original plan for Musketeer and managed to do it quickly, rather than trying to rely on the idea of there being some sort of uprising against um, against Egypt's leader, mm-hmm. they the Americans probably would have ended up supporting the British and the French because they mm-hmm. wouldn't, didn't want to see the Suez Canal going into uh, risking going into communist hands any more than any than the British and the French did. And, and to be fair, you know, it's not the United States hasn't been involved in every action either. So uh, I'm thinking of um, the Malayan emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking of, well, for Australia, uh, East Timor. So you know, it's yeah, it, there's swings and roundabouts. That's, that's for sure. There's you know, certainly an interesting subject. Mm. Mm, It'll be yeah. fun. And the next one sounds like something you would come up with: a uh, rock paper exercise. Yes, and this is from Carl Gasberg, um, mm-hmm. who you can uh, honestly... Um, I'm starting to get worried about this. If for those of our listeners who do not know on this on my um, YouTube, I am, I'm slightly worried about the Blackburn Blackburn because mm-hmm. it does seem to be coming a full-on religion because actually Carl has finished <laughs> the email with all hail the latter-day biplane, the Adriatic Orthodox Church of the Holy Blackburn Blackburn. Blackburn. <laughs> well, as cults go, it's not necessarily the worst. <laughs> I mean, if we can establish that Prince Philip ever flew in or was in proximity to a Blackburn Blackburn, then we have actual evidence of divine presence. <laughs> Do not encourage them. <laughs> I keep getting worried. I'm going to end up getting the I don't know some form of the tra- the treasury coming around to go, sir. We wish to talk to you about your role as head of this church. What church? <laughs> it's, a pity, it's a pity. It's a pity we're not based in the U.S. for this, because otherwise we could claim tax exempt tax exempt status as the as the founders of a religion. Yes. 
Hey, uh, thank you, Val. No, thank you, Val. Listeners, ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually it's a very good and very interesting topic because it goes through all the sort of the guided weapons. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes through the development of weapons and how uh, you know weapons have become what they've become, and it's actually something interesting to think about because. We are so used to, and I, I was talking about this. I think you know, on one of my on one of my lives the other day, the concept that technology just moves in straight lines, mm. and that you can see what's going to be the end result. Well, the fact is, you will have lots of bits which go off, and you will have some bits which will be dead ends, which you don't realise are dead ends until you write down them, and some bits which won't be dead ends. They'll be how do I put this? They're sort of like uh, they're a street which is sort of built, but the developer runs out of money, or they can't they can't due to technology they can't do anymore, so it gets cut off. It sort of finishes, and then about twenty thirty years later, another technology and another another development in another part of the world or another thing suddenly makes the rest of that street viable, and so they start building it again. Yeah. And you cannot predict what necessary is going to be. And what is necessarily going to come. And it's really quite interesting to look at, to go through the history and look at the technology which has come through. The branches, and, yeah. Yeah, and that, that is the thing. It's gone through all the branches. I mean, yeah, the, the classic example, of course, is, of course is, is drones. And we know that drones have been around since forever. There were, yeah. the Royal Navy had AA drones during the interwar period. Mm. Well, so the did the Queen Bees. You know, and the US, so had, the US had, 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 had them. Yep, and you know, um, that that, but they have taken decades before the technology has got to the point where they can do what people have wanted them to do since the nineteen twenties, basically. So, yeah, it's there's, I, I, um, it comes back to that whole projecting forward thing again. You know, it's. Mm. Uh, yeah, the, in the eighties, everyone was talking about how missiles made everything um, uh, obsolete, and now I guess we're in that era where we were actually staring down the barrel of that possibly being the case, with um, Russia and China mm. deciding that the best way to counter multi-billion-dollar aircraft carriers is masses of multi-million-dollar missiles. Um, again, how do we know? We won't know how effective that is, I suppose, until it's, if, uh, let's hope it doesn't actually ever happen, put into effect. But um, so, so it's that constant, um, that constant battle between uh, ammunition and armour, you know, that's that constant cycle. At some point, the um, you, you come up with a new way of, of punching through that breastplate with a, a bodkin point arrow. And then you come up with a, a new way to counteract that bod, bodkin point arrow. But now you start throwing all these extra things into the mix, electronic warfare, which we were just talking about a minute ago. Um, you know, now we're talking about that these days, as far as I can read between the lines, electronic warfare is pretty much out of date as soon as you build it because once you build it, you've, you've locked yourself into a particular spectrum. And once that spectrum is identified, then it just simply gets shifted either away or a jammer comes along to, fo to focus on it. So I think there's a big push at the moment to build 
um, spectrum lensing equipment so that you can basically choose whatever spectrum and shift across spectrums <coughs> um, very, very quickly to, to race ahead of the various jamming technologies. So it's what works, what doesn't, and and what the new idea is. You know, there's so many different uh, suggestions and ideas there. Everything from you know missiles, how they were going to be the be all and end all in Vietnam. Guns were going to be obsolete. Um, you know, uh, whoever would have thought that we'd see flak again, and yet after we've been discussing it, we're discovering that actually yeah, there are actually um, weapons out there being built as flak weapons. <laughs> so, Actually, some of them have started since we've been discussing about it. Again, I, I, I think it is bilge pumps. There are people listening to bilge pumps and have decided that actually we are very smart. We are very I, 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 gentlemen. I, I suspect that we must have heard about it and just uh, forgotten where we heard about it from because it probably takes a few more years to come up with or, these concepts. Then. <laughs> or possibly we're just reading the same. Uh, we just spent so long doing it that we read the tea leaves the same as the other people are now. Mm. And that could well be it, because it could be other people reading the same tea leaves we are and going, hang on, this is starting to fit. It's mm. it's one of the interesting things I've I, I, I've been looking at. You know, I keep talking about the Type 31s, and currently they have a single 57mm, a single 40mm, and then another single 40mm on the back. And the amount of people I've talked to recently over the Christmas period who, you know, instead of doing Christmas parties with all these online Christmas things where everyone's getting together and there's me with my iron brew sitting here quietly going, why did I agree to be this? And they're chatting away and they're going, oh, yeah, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is can we fit a double mounting into a single mounting space? And, yeah, it turns out the turret <laughs> ring is... I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> Yeah. So that's going to be the easy, quick upgrade. Well, that would make sense and would work. And actually, they the thing is, they're talking about doing the upgrade while they're even building them because they haven't placed the firm order for the weapons yet. And the double mounting could come out. And you sort of go, OK, well, if it's a double, it's not double 57 millimeter, but if they double up the bofers, then that's a lot of firepower on Type 31s. And you cannot let you cannot start calling them thinking going hang on their role in wartime is they are a flak frigate to protect the uh, protect the carrier aren't they that is what they are if you look compared to what the rest of the things are armed with you'd hope so yeah if they've got the right ammunition and the right guidance and the right uh, targeting yeah and so uh, that's that, that's the one we're most worried about in terms of forming a religion and then we have the next one of this is from Scott Abel. Now, I have to say, reading Scott's story, considering my own issues I've had with getting employment as a junior academic and the own stuff I've had, mm. I, w I have to admit, as I got about as emotional as an, as an Englishman can get, I had to pour myself a second glass of iron brew. Mm -hmm. And it's also, it's really cool history. So um, I'm going to let you two lead the discussion while I get myself a second another glass of iron brew. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, Take it away, Derek. Yeah, it's looking at the, uh, 
the South China Sea and China, but not in the 21st century. We're actually looking at the the 19th century and the uh, the wonderful era of. Should we say everybody pretty much trying to be pirates? Um, in some way, shape, or form, you had you had the honest pirates who were literally there to steal things from your ships. You had the the British who were desperate to sell everybody opium, <laughs> and the Chinese who really well. The Chinese. Let's be honest. The first drug wars weren't about stopping the distribution; they were about pushing it. Mm. And then you have the Chinese who the officials really, really would rather not use old massive amounts of opium to the populace for rather obvious reasons. On the other hand, you had the populace who rather would rather appreciate large amounts of opium being sold to them um and then all the various weird and wonderful things about closed ports open ports etc etc um yeah and uh, of course and into that you have to throw the mix of the fact when you say the british you're not actually just talking about a single um force that's interested in one particular thing you're talking about the east india company and the royal navy whose points of view and priorities are quite often radically different <laughs> it's also you know, also a lot of parallels of course between mm. then and now um you know a lot of the same it's, a, it's the same terrain mm. it's, it's the straits of malacca it's south china sea uh, malaysia vietnam it's it's uh, hong kong it's mm. it's about how it's about the interplay of uh, geography and politics. Yeah. So you know, and again, you know, in amongst that, piracy is again becoming a problem. Um, you know, the, the Straits of Malacca problems there with with, mm. with piracy. Um, not to mention just uh, the, the 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 constant clash of, um, shall we say, vested interests. In mm-hmm. all these particular particular waterways, I mean, yeah, it's like a country like Australia, we get all of our fuel from Singapore. Mm. Um, we've we've decided to shut down most of our um, refineries, and uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> every if those if those tankers don't pull into our ports every three days, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, that's always such a sensible decision to do. And and <laughs> to be honest, whilst some people might find it somewhat distasteful because colonialism bad um there's also a lot in this submission talking about how the british the dutch the east india company etc dealt with at the time the various local leaders when and i think whilst you maybe don't necessarily want to replicate all of the methods there is probably some a certain amount to be learned from the way that large military powers who are remotely based from the area deal with local nations powers rulers whatever in a way that tries to establish a mutually beneficial and peaceful setup because let's face it um the other type of of uh, dealing with local smaller powers the gunboat diplomacy where you show up and say give us all the stuff or do exactly what we say or we're going to shoot you um people aren't too happy with that either and even if people wanted to do that it's um somewhat impractical these days without colossally expensive wars so it has limited uh, utility yes under so, the current circumstances 
so the the idea of a, a mutually beneficial exchange where you provide something that the local government wants in exchange for them providing you something that you want like say kick the pirates out um or open up trade it's probably somewhat more even <laughs> than than the gunboat approach um and as i say obviously there's there there are differences it's um it's it's much easier to bribe somebody in the 18th or 19th century when you have gunpowder firearms and they don't but the the principles of actually maybe we should do this for mutual benefit are probably something that's worth looking into because i think what one of the problems as we've covered in in some other bill trump's episodes these days is that everybody these days seems to be in it when it comes to geopolitics what is best and only best for me and no one else <laughs> to the point that you can actually actively wreck stuff that's good for you because um you just don't want the other guy to have any benefit out of it and that's problematic mm. Mm. look i mean i i personally think this is you know it's fascinating to delve into the history of a region that is so much the center of so much news at the moment mm. um you know i and it's, it's made me think well actually i'd also like to find out a hell of a you know, go back over what happened to South China Sea, you know, in those opening weeks of the war in the Pacific, you know, mm. December, January, oh, 1941-42, because, you know, this is the, 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 surely there's uh, things that can be learned from the experiences there. The, um, you know, the, the forward deployed US Navy, the forward deployed US Air Force, um, okay, well, we've we've sort of mentioned ABDA in the past, the emergency mm -hmm. attempt to cooperate. Well, um, I think the, we've, that's one lesson that has most certainly been learnt since World War Two. But um, it's still an interesting concept. Once again, all of a sudden, getting the Dutch, the British, the Americans talking mm -hmm. to each other and operating together. together. But you know, just the strategic challenge they faced as well of um, operating. And defending the uh, Indonesian archipelago, you know, the there's just uh, it's an area that's um, rich in history, but let's face it, it doesn't get as much attention from the likes of us as the Mediterranean does. No, no, it doesn't, and it doesn't get. There's so much content there, mm. and yet it gets. I think the trouble is with history is that sometimes there are the things done because I know certain areas where there are books written about it, but it gets ignored. And I often have to restrain myself on Twitter. And, I, and probably you two do the same as well in that sometimes I see someone on Twitter going off saying, oh, this part of history is completely ignored and it's all taught this way. And you go, well, actually, no, no one teaches it that way. There's been all sorts of books published in the last 20 years which do, uh, which go completely opposite to what you're saying there. The trouble is you're repeating what is probably the cultural history of your generation when you grew up and the cultural memory of that history when you grew up. And I don't think you were really paying attention then. You just saw a headline and didn't actually bother to go and watch the actual program. Because mm. otherwise you'd have known there was nuance. Yes. You can't have nuance in modern society. Yeah. Well, that's you, the reason we have bilge pumps. We, we, uh, bilge we pumps. must. We, we must have polar. We must mm. have polar polarization or bilge pumps. Yes. Mm. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> anyway, so that's yeah. I, I, I'm so fascinated by that subject. Um, you know, it's as I say, it's we're, we're going to be talking about this region a hell of a lot more anyway, um, and any more context that can add to our understanding of it, the better. And the next one is a really interesting one. It's incredibly well cited. It's from Alex Miller, who is really, really bright. I'm going to say this because looking at it is all about green shipping. Mm. And once and it, again, we, once again, it uh, drags back um, good old Sal. Sal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, there are a couple of things here which are really good, but we know we're getting Sal in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sal Merkelano is coming back, and this whether he likes is, it or not, <laughs> no, especially for this one because it's got LNG options, biofuels, and the thing is, I was sitting there thinking, like, going this way, going, well, the, the the thing is, where the merchant shipping, the navy, navies usually have to follow, mm. because again, the navies don't want to be stuck using the old style expensive fuel because the whatever's being used by the majority will be the fuel which is the cheapest. And most available. Yeah. So you don't want to be turning up at a port in some sort of emergency situation, whether it's a hurricane or a war, to discover that, nope, we don't have your um, your, your type here. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And it's going to create issues because you can think about it, but there is a lot of issues. There's methano fuel, there's hydrogen fuel cells he's discussing. There's all sorts of other propulsion ideas, which is sort of looking and going, could we really do that? Hybrid solar and battery designs. Could that, no, no. Break out the old sails. Well, that's what the Rolls-Royce project is trying to reinduce sales in industry. And it's just, it, it's just such an interesting load of ideas. So I'm sitting there going, okay. And then there's all the citations he provides. Mm. It's good. <clears throat> Maybe he should uh, submit. Maybe we should get a, get your um, old professor into this one. <laughs> oh yeah, Andrew could be interesting for this one. But no, but, uh, I, you know, when it comes to when it comes to fuels, though, there's so many things to consider. Um, we we know that um, hulls nowadays need a lot of electricity output. Um, yeah, everything from the radar through to you know, potentially the um, the uh, electrothermal cannons. You mm-hmm. know, the it's 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 just to lasers to the, you know, plugging in your drones to recharge. Mm. Um, whatever the choice is, it's going to have to be efficient, but it's also going to have to be, well, it's going to be extremely efficient. It's going to pack have to pack a lot of power into a as small a volume as possible. Yeah. Um, now, whether that's nuclear, whether that's you know a a, um, a, a, a green fuel, it's going to have to still be a. It's going to have to still be efficient. Mm. And um, I don't know if it was an official study I was reading the other day or not. I can't remember, but I saw a plan for a new Zumwalt, which had a nuclear power plant stuck in it rather than the existing one. Well, you know, this is a big thing at the moment where everyone's talking about these small modular reactors. Yeah. 
Um, I know that there are there's talk of building demonstration models in a in a, in a few U.S. states, but I think a few of those demonstrations have fallen through recently. Um, again, I think Rolls Royce is building some in the UK. I think they're actually yeah, building one or two. It's one of those things where they sound wonderful. You know, um, if you can imagine a a reactor that's you know the size of a, a shipping container or something. I think it's a bit bigger than that, but um, uh, you know, still a very small reactor that runs on its uh, fuel cell for twenty years um, can be you know uh, stacked up with other. Examples of its own kind, so you can have you can have one reactor, or you can have twelve sitting together to, <clears throat> and you know t- you can turn one up and turn others down to get the different levels of output you want. <clears throat> um, you know, again, it sounds wonderful, but it's one of those things where I, I think the engineering needs to be proven before you start to commit to uh, you know building your next generation of warships. I mean, you know, people have been building modular uh, small reactors for a long time. US oh, this is what you've got in your submarines. But the next generation are these modular ones, which are smaller still but have that ability to be sort of um uh, daisy chained or interconnected to to produce the uh, a, a variable output level that um mm. That, you know. I think it is the only viable solution with current tech levels to the railgun problems. Because let's be honest, the big problem with the railgun is storing enough energy and having enough energy on tap to do the to fire it. So mm. you basically, you know, that, I, I I think half the trouble they've been looking at is they keep sort of going, oh, we need some sort of capacitors, and yes, you do need capacitors. So you're probably going to need capacitors to deal the surge, but how are you going to charge enough time? How are you going to have enough base charge? on the system to fire it and load it and all these things. And eventually you end up going, well, we can theoretically do this with a stonking great big gas turbine, theoretically, or we could certainly do it with a nuclear reactor. Oh, we're going to try the stonking great big gas turbine first because everyone prefers that politically. But you all know that in the end, it's probably going to be the st- uh, it's probably going to be the nuclear reactor. I'm, I'm not sure I'd ever want to see a, a, a warship powered by um, LPG. Mm-hmm. Well, well, uh, it if we were going to reinvent the modern fire ship, I was considering the ram, but yes, the fire ship will do as well as the option. <clears throat> yes, lots of you know, it's it's one of those realities where things are going to have to change. I suppose uh, if you have your unmanned corvette um, fueled with um, LPG and you could charge the enemy task group. That, that there might be a few consternation heads going, what are they doing? Why is that ship charging towards us? Don't fire! No one fire! No one fire! That's one of their LPG ones. Everyone <laughs> withdraw! 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 <laughs> but yes, you know, again, it's it's one of those things where you know, the, the change is needed. Um, yeah. What, what What's going to work? And I suspect that for military that... Um, the best. This is a situation where the, the divergence it will mean that the military solution might have to be different to the civilian. And the good thing about Alex is he is Alex Miller is he is an also almost graduate graduated naval architect. So him and Sal and us hopefully adding in bits could actually be a very intelligent, interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. 
And next is... The next is from... Now, it's from Engaging Strategy. So for those of you who don't follow them on Twitter, they are a very, very popular Twitter person. And they have put forward a colossal application. Mm-hmm. And it's Bill Trump's topic to a pitch. It's, it's everything from them. They're otherwise known as British Grenadier on Discord, I think. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the pitch is a bloody war and sickly season. The Royal Navy in 1965 to 1982. Now, that was the, that's the title they've officially gone with. Their initial title was going to be A Love Letter to HMS Bristol. And I'm afraid that's the title bilge pumps are going with because <laughs> we like that title more. No. <laughs> In many ways, this is a parallel to a couple of the prior submissions as well. It's um, the US hegemony version. It's mm. you know it 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 because it runs parallel to that. Mm. Um, it's effectively the entire mid Cold War Royal Navy history. Yeah, in, in I mean, many ways, but it's but it's it, but it's also about what do you do with the money you've got? Yeah, it's it, it, and plus it's also about that change in circumstances. No longer the great power trying to come to grips with what sort of power it is. So it's there's there's so many there's so much in there to dissect. Um, any one of those streams <laughs> would be an entire episode in itself mm. yeah and i mean when you when you think about it it's like that time period at the it's it's not even 20 years mm. but at the same time five years well not even five years about two, three or four years before the end of before the start of that period you still have hms vanguard around mm-hmm. and you're, and at the point there, they're talking about expanding how to expand the Royal Navy's fleet carrier support, fleet carrier role, new ships, etc. And by the end of it, the Royal Navy is in some ways saved by the fact the Argentinians decide to invade the Falklands. And we're down to and, and the, the, the Royal Navy at that point is a is a kind of a North Atlantic anti-submarine force that happens to have I a was, couple of old carriers lying around. I was really, really surprised when I was listening to him. Um, and I knew, I, I know I'd uh, heard it before, but I was just reminded of it when I was listening to the um, book 809 um, about the scale of the cuts against the Royal Navy that were proposed under Thatcher's government were mm. colossal. Half your destroyer force um, flogging off um, illustrious, whether it was to the Australians or anybody else, it was, still, it was going to be flogged off. Hermes, of course, and um, yeah, going through the preparations, all these um, all these squadron leaders preparing mm-hmm. for their squadrons to be disbanded were all suddenly. Well, actually, no, you're not going to be disbanded next week. You're now going to be heading south. The extent of it, whether it's the R, uh, the, the RAF or the uh, FAA, it's just, it just was really surprising for me. Mm. And I guess it it, 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 it it certainly, you know, the Falklands War certainly um, put an end to that, but only until the 2000s. One of the interesting things with it, though, is it started off a precedent 
which I would argue is continuing to stay for good or for ill, that from that point onwards, the prime ministers have taken a far more personal interest in defence than they had prior to that since the end of the Second World War. Barring Winston Churchill, pretty much after that point, the prime ministers had left the defence running to the Minister of Defence and had been focusing on their either their other domestic policy goals or their foreign policy goals. And I presume the Ministry of Defence was running and was doing OK. Margaret Thatcher had certainly, prior to that, she'd been interested in defence in a broad straight way, but she hadn't really thought about it. And she, in terms of she presumed that the paper being coming out of the Ministry of Defence and not was a sensible one. And when she it was only after the Falklands War, she sort of reads the paper and not isn't made the scapegoat, but other people are got rid of. But Knott's role in the in the government from that point on is basically mud. And he's yeah, basically the budget, you know, the budget still comes out of her office, though. It, it's, uh, well, the budget yeah. does. But you see, <laughs> the, the thing you have to remember in British, the, the, the cabinet and the way the Treasury works and the budgeting works, etc., it's very much what is the prime minister's priorities. Mm. And if the prime minister is taking far more of an interest than the treasury, the treasury has more power over things which are less interested than the prime minister. There's a balance between number 10 and number 11, between the chancellor's office and the prime minister's office. And it's always a case of what is the, is the, what is the prime minister prepared to basically tell the chancellor no on. And if we go up to the current, sort of that's carried on, carried on. And sort of, then you had John Major, who was all over the freaking place, and we'll leave that to one side. But then you had, after that, you had Tony Blair. Gordon Brown, who was very keen on projects being funded, which would give lots of jobs to constituents, which is one of the reasons why the carrier contract is quite so bulletproof. Then you have David Cameron, who's very keen on, I don't know, the armed forces looking like they were not going to do anything because he mm. believed in another 10-year rule. He didn't think <clears> there was going to be war. And then war happened, and he was dancing around everywhere trying to do his best impression of George Bush. The war is now over. You know, we have won victory. Yay. And you're sort of going, uh, have you seen what's actually going on in Libya now? Then you had Theresa May, who really was ignoring most things defence related because she was her, her thing was so focused on Brexit and now you've had Boris Johnson who I think really does sometimes imagine himself as Churchill come again and um, it that does seem to be interesting seems, seems to be a bit Navy. of a plague lately doesn't it it seems to be a bit of a plague lately everyone wants that, to be Churchill yeah everyone wants to be Churchill when it well, comes to something when that's the last good Prime Minister you can think mm. sort of going well actually there have been some okay ones since and there were some okay ones before it. And Churchill was a good wartime prime minister. Peacetime. Just as long as he didn't get involved in the war. Yeah. Look, <laughs> he kept everyone going. And the thing is, uh, the, 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 one of the trouble with Churchill is it's so easy to point out things he got wrong because he comes up with so many Same ideas. And the trouble is that quite a lot of people afterwards write up histories just basically going, all the fault is his and all the good stuff is my idea. And you sit there and go... That, that, that there are so many leaders like that through history. All the big names, all the faults of them, but all the good ideas were the junior people who are writing the books after the war, claiming credit. Anyway, I'm, here I'm we sure are. There's <laughs> nothing in that, is there? Uh, if, to be perfectly honest, if you if you want if you want a prime a uh, uh, prime minister 
who really wants to imitate Churchill, the first thing you've got to do is is force feed them possibly by IV drip at least two liters of whiskey a day. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure we'd get a different leadership style at that point. I'm not necessarily sure whether it would be a good or bad change, but it would be a change, and change yeah. is interesting. Yeah. There's, 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 there's one thing here which makes you realise that this particular subject is a very good one. Mm. We've just spent the past five minutes discussing the period before 1965 and the period <laughs> after 1982. Mm. Mm. So um, it's absolutely uh, on the ball when it comes to this is mm. a, um overlooked era yeah. that has that has had massive repercussions on the state of the the royal navy in particular for decades to come <clears throat> after um but the circumstances of the time are still you know relevant to now because and, you know, this is a bit, and, this is the middle the of a cold who's war. worried out that the fact that the type 21 had the same marketing as a type 31 yes good just checking i wasn't the only one who was worried about that <laughs> oh dear. Uh, then, so then we've got uh, this is the stuff final this is i think this is the final one yes yes yeah. it is i'm not sure how long we've been recording for but um a long time a long time this one is from stafford mm. tom uh, stafford douglas thomas who is a lovely lovely gentleman who i know comments regularly on all our youtube videos who i don't know about you but again it loves to chat on discord with so many people has all sorts of ideas and has basically designed a whole fleet mm -hmm. and he's basically gone through what are the problems that we have to do today what are the things that navies have to deal with and what would be the best ships to have to fulfill these roles and missions? And is basically taking all the navies back to step and going, let's design what this would be. And it's really quite an interesting idea because it opens all sorts of debates of, are we actually just building ships in the mold we're building because we've all been building ships like that for years? And are we actually building them wrong? Hmm. And considering the amount of time you and uh, the three of us spend discussing ship designs and going, they're not right. Yeah. They're not right. Uh, we, he, he might have something on to this. And I realise it's a bit of the what's this, which Jamie doesn't sort of really enjoy, but it sort of uses the current technology to look at it going, are we doing this wrong? And I think it's it's good for that perspective. It's, it's, always, it's always good. You know, gristle for the mill for sure it's, it's also it's always good to analyze where you're at the only concern i have with this kind of thing is what we sort of touched on a little bit earlier which is how the hell do you predict what's going to be the situation in 20 years time because that's how long it yeah. takes to take a mm. ship from conception to to uh, operational capability well at the moment and, at least <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah uh, we haven't tried 3d metal pinching yet um <laughs> So, so saying, that, that, you know, a few years that, on a research budget. I'll get it that, that's one reason why I'm prepared to cut, you know, naval designers a bit of slack. Because, yeah. you know, you can only look into a crystal ball so much. Um, and you can only build so much flexibility into a design with the budgets that you get. And, mm. um, but at the same time, yes, how much, how much of it is habit? You know, why do we – is a destroyer now a destroyer? Is a frigate now a frigate? You know, is a, should we be coming up with whole new sets of names instead of tying ourselves to concepts which <coughs> come with a whole lot of baggage? 
and that baggage and also, may send you down, you know, send you off down the wrong paths. So. And a, a straw poll: How many of us in this conversation think there's going to be a flight seven, Arlie Burke? Well, I think they've got no real choice at the moment, have they? Mm. Well, currently we're at flight three, aren't we, or flight four? Mm. Are, are, are we reckoning there's going to get to a flight seven? It's going to depend on what happens. Well, they, they, they've managed to ace the FFGX competition. They're looking at the large surface combatant. I think it's I think it's going to be an awful lot on what happens with the large surface combatant because there's been rumours and statements flying around left, right, and centre whether it's CGX two electric boogaloo on steroids um, now with lasers or whether it's uh, kind of. Uh, progression is actually on the lower end of things and it's this pro- a progression on the destroyer design kind of ddgx to now now more sane uh, so well you see the, the, there is options for Zumwalt which does work because you know, mm. as we talked about it Zumwalt what works the the hull works mm. the engines work they've managed mm. to get those things all worked out what was the problem with Zumwalt the rail guns which weren't ready and the radars, which weren't ready, and the lasers, which weren't ready. So you've got yourself a working ship design. Okay, it needs some work, but mm. it's not. It, it's mostly there. What's the problem? It's the fact that you designed it for vaporware weapons. Mm. But to be fair, at the same time, the thing's almost 16,000 tons. Yeah. It's... It's probably just that fraction too big for mass production on the scale of the Burks. Now, fair enough, some of the roles that the Burks currently doing will be taken over by the Constellations. So whatever the new Destroyer class is going to be is not going to need quite as many built. Um, But they are still going to have to build a fair chunk of them. And yeah, the... I think it depends on whether they have to take over from the cruisers as well. Yeah, think, well, yeah. This is, this is the this... thing. It's it, yeah. it's looking at it. I'm I'm looking at the Zumwalts and going. They're nice ships, but to me, they sit in entirely the wrong displacement bracket because they're just too. They're just that little bit too big. I think to mass. And, and that's what I was thinking. I and think that's they're for more them. cruiser replacement. I think that's what they're looking for more at the moment. I don't think they're looking to replace the Burks. I think they're going to keep building the Burks. I think they're looking to replace the Tikos. Because they need something to fill that role. And the only hull they've got that's big enough to f- take on the equipment which you need to fill that role at the moment that is ready to go without them having to spend a lot of money developing it and maybe mucking mm. it up is the Zumwalt hull. Mm. And I think that's what they're looking to replace. Because look at what they're talking about the whole time. Look at the, the, the structures that, that they're going through. Everything is screaming. It's They're calling a destroyer, but everything is screaming, we're replacing the Ticos. I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it, how do you get it past? How do you get it past Congress? Um, you call it destroyer. Yeah. <laughs> as I say, I think the thing is that the the Zumwalts to me they're just a fraction. If you want to do a modern Ticonderoga with all that entails, anti ballistic missile work, etc., 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 the Zumwalt hole's just a bit too small for that. But it's also just a little bit too big for a mass-produced Burk replacement destroyer. I, I, as I've said, I'm sure I've said before, if you're going to do a Tico replacement, you probably want something 18 to 20,000 tons, which would be at the upper end of what they've occasionally been talking about for large surface combatant. If you want to do a Burke replacement, bearing in mind that you have the constellations being built as well, 
you probably want something in the order of about 12,000 tons, something that looks like a sort of a, a Sejong the Great style missile battery with slightly more Zumwalt inspired hull stealth. And so, yeah, the sort of 16, 17,000 tons Zumwalt hull, it sits just in the middle of not quite good enough for either. <laughs> yeah, but you can. Uh, the, the thing about the Zumwalt hull is it was designed with the potential to take quite a lot more weight being added into it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you're sure if you could, you, if you took the Zumwalt hull, for example, and you, I don't know, cut it not directly in half, but if you, if you severed the hull in design somewhere along its length and added another block in and popped it up to an 18,000 tonner, that would probably give you enough hull volume and capacity for a decent Tico replacement. And to but be I'm, honest, I'm, you can do that with a hull design. Yeah. And, and that would make a certain amount of sense, but I'm definitely not convinced it's a, a, it, that kind of level is a Burke replacement. That's that's your cruiser replacement. As I say, I think you want something in the 12,000 ton range for a, for a Burke replacement. And you want something about requiring about half the crew to operate. Mm, yes. So you actually need some automated systems. <clears throat> yes, not just cut the crew down. <laughs> oh. All right, it's probably time we decided to vote here a little bit mm -hmm. um otherwise we'll be here until next episode yep the cows come home yeah um for me my top two look it's, it's so hard it's uh, it's splitting hairs mm. this is yeah basically well, you know we, we, we will look at all of them but when it comes to summoning a guest mm. as as the reward for the ideas i'm thinking my number one vote is malacca uh mm -hmm. basically Malacca, yeah, the basically because of self-interest, um, you know, I am focusing a lot on what's been happening in and around South China Sea. Um, so learning more about its history will just help open my eyes as to you know what the potentials are there, what the scenarios are there, what the the issues are there, um, and. I think it's you know it's a subject that we will all be hearing about so much more in the future. The more we know, the better. Mm. Closely followed by, by um, the prolonged war concept, the you know, preparing for a future where you know those big frontline vessels, aircraft might might not be available, but we still have the need. So that's my two top two. Track. It's so difficult to choose. I mean, the, <laughs> as Jamie says, there there are a few things. There are a few as we and as we discussed, there are a few topics here where we definitely need to get external expert guests in, like Sal, as well. Uh, yeah. As well. So those Honestly, ones, it is those ones. Obviously, are going to take longer to do, uh, longer to get organised because you know we actually have to ask people <laughs> and fit with their schedule. <laughs> I think that's sort of the thing. There's sort of this part of me just tempted to say with all of them, I, I, I'd like to have a go at doing all of them at some point over mm. the year. Mm -hmm. Some are going to take longer. We can't do in January because we're going to try and get Sal and other people involved, mm. and maybe Prof Lambert involved for some of them. And some of them we can do far more quickly. Mm. If I, if I was but, when, but, if... but when it comes to inviting the, you know, the, the, the submission, 
to on. to chat about the subject. Yeah. I think. Yeah, well, I don't. I think if we're going to do them, I'd invite the submitter to chat about the subject to uh, to whichever one we're doing. I tell them when we're going then, to record then, it and see if they agree. Then it's not a competition. Well, <laughs> I, I know it's not a competition, but the fact is they've all been. They're all so good, and we did only get nine. And it is nine very good ones, and only yeah, eight of them want to. Be, only eight of them want to be on. And mm-hmm. um, I, 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 I the, the, the trouble is, they're all so good. I know I shouldn't be doing this because it is supposed to be a competition, but it's so tempting to say that you know, everybody's okay, a winner. <laughs> not that everyone's a winner, but that all they're these all very intelligent, that, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, they've all. Th- th- there's none of them which were jokey ones. We were. I have to admit, we were all half expecting them to be jokey submissions and none of them are jokey submissions so my thinking is there are uh, the, the direct winners will be the two we try and do in january okay mm-hmm. that'll be but i would the, the, my feeling is i uh, every one of them January's i would like to half over so it'd probably be february but anyway. it's january february <laughs> but you know it's yeah. gonna in the case of the two we try and record immediately that's that that's sort of the winners but i would like to say that i think we're going to work through every single one of them at some yes. point over this yes. year because mm. we would uh, there isn't one i wouldn't like to sort of go to there's like the, that ship design one which we want mm-hmm. to discuss and look through properly it doesn't want to be on uh, on the show but actually i would like to do that somewhere because that's a really interesting design and especially if we are discussing cg uh, the, the new large escort which the Americans are talking about, those things that looked like a large escort design to me. That looked like something you could be talking about in that bracket. Mm. But yeah. I, anyway, still, you have to choose. I, I, well, I'm going to let Drake put his out. two forward first and see what his two are for January because we've had your okay. two. For well, ch- choosing two for January that makes it much easier because then I could because say yeah because there there are some that I would go yeah that I really really like this but. They're going to require a lot, either a lot more work or, or external guests. But the two I would choose for the next four to six weeks to cover, I'm, hmm, I would probably want to cover the mili- the first one we had, military uses for civilian spec ships. Yes, and. Probably a look at the prolong the long war. So we've got two votes for the long war, definitely. That's that's for this, but but yeah, as I say, it's, it's like those are those are the two that I can see us doing relatively quickly. That's not saying those. I'm not I'm not saying that those two are the, the top results. Because to be perfectly honest, if you yeah. ask me to say which are good which are good ones, they're they're all excellent. Yes. Otherwise, we wouldn't but, but, have spent all this time talking about them. Yeah, uh, and to be fair, we've only recorded like. The last third of the discussion but that's how long today's the conversation has been over this and you know uh reading them all the way over christmas and going oh this is gonna be hard no, um, we're not gonna let you dodge this one come on your two i would say the civilian ships but i also would say scott abel's one um the uh, one of where it's his doctorate in the history. malacca one the malacca one so we've got two for Malacca and t- two votes for Malacca, two votes for prolonged war and two votes for military uses for civilian inspect ships split equally between the three of us. <laughs> so uh, I guess, well, there we go. We've got a top three. We we, we, we now know what three of our subjects have, have, are up to the end of February. Have, have yes. you got a three-sided dice? 
Um, no. Three done. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we could probably do it's it like... six. What, yeah. What, we, what we'll say is we'll get those three done by the end of February and the rest yeah. we'll work through during the year. We will talk to everyone and we will see when we can do them. It's like, I would love to do Stafford Thompson's... Uh, 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 Stafford's one, um, the one mm. at the end, looking at the the whole the fleet gold. design. Yeah, but, but I'd that's like to get something we can pass on by the radar. You know, yeah, uh, but that's stuff. and that's something I'd like to get maybe someone like Steve George on mm-hmm. with to talk about that to talk about that, with that with him because I think that'd be really cool having an engineer who's practically been operating on these things. And the thing about Steve George is, whilst he's an aero engineer, and we do talk about this quite a lot he also whenever he was on board ships did also end up helping out the ship engineering and various other things so he did all sorts of things and he could give us a all sorts of perspective on that and on the, the practicality of building and designing and so many of them like that but i would say with the three we've picked out there is one which we probably want sal on for but the other two we could do with just the mm. Just the, the just the proposer on as well, mm. so I, I I can work out an order, but that, that we've got the three that we're going to do yep. by the end of February. Um, okay. the, the the other six we will work through over the remainder of the year. We're set. Mm. Yes, we have in no way at all <laughs> skipped our requirements of doing this as a proper competition at all. <laughs> it's the listeners' fault. They send in too good a submissions. Yeah. Yes. We blame, we blame them. The yeah, it's, yeah. It, we're like politicians who blame the voters. We're blaming the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> You're too good. <laughs> all, right. all right. Look, take after care. all that time, we should probably call it the night. All right. Take care. All right. Take See care. you then. Thank you. Thank See you. Bye. Bye. All right. Okay. Well, I'm going for. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.